from PRX. Stew. Stew. D. D. E. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you mean, are. No, no. You've I'm got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show... Don't just listen to newsreaders or train people. You know, call people in Brooklyn. I call people like at libraries and just to talk, just to hear a real voice, you know. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay sit. Tracy Ullman first appeared on America's Radar and mine in the late 1980s. The Fox network was new, and one of the very first series there was The Tracy Ullman Show. Great primetime sketch comedy, all starring Tracy Ullman. Plus some music, plus some original animated shorts, including some about a cartoon family that morphed into a show of its own eventually. Almost ready. Here we go. Let's get the show on the road, man. We got things to do. Yeah, Dad. Tracy Ullman is still a remarkable and deeply funny and charming comic actress and on television again here, this time HBO, with Tracy Ullman's show. Slightly different title, now starting its second season. I used to be the most powerful, sexy, confident, sexy, admired, sexy, sought out, <laughs> sexy female politicians on the global stage. The show features Almond's spot on impersonations of Angela Merkel, whom we heard there, as well as Judy Dench, and a bunch of new people this season. When she moved to the U.S. from England 30 years ago, way before today's era of complicated and unlikable TV characters, she studied American TV shows. So, Tracy Ullman, what what was your impression of American TV when you did that crash course in the 1980s? Yeah, it was different. When I first came to America, network TV seemed to be a lot of sappy, kind of, you know, gee, let's eat pizza. I really learned something this week. I love you, Mom. (laughs) I thought, oh, my God. I thought, who celebrates the loser in America? Who celebrates the crappy people? And then I saw Broadway Danny Rose, you know, the film with Woody Allen. I thought, wow, that celebrates a loser. And then I saw Taxi and Danny DeVito's character was the only sort of mean character yeah. on network TV to me. That's interesting. The, yeah. the idea of not of, of losers be, becoming figures of, of television fiction. Yeah, and now point. everyone's a loser on yeah. American well, TV. Uh, everyone's neurotic. Everyone feels like rejected. Everyone feels forgotten Homer Simpson, and, and marginalized. A great loser. You know, yeah. Back then they didn't. That's true. That's true. Well, you also, you came here before you were known as an, this great actor as a musician. You well, had, I was a pop singer. You had a, you had oh, a I hit. I had a top 10 hit. I just... 19 1983. I was an MTV VJ. Were you? That makes sense. That makes some kind of sense. Well, I watched. I watched the the video of Breakaway, and here here is Uh-oh. Breakaway. Your hit. <laughs> Now, 
And that's Tracy Ullman with we her hit Breakaway. Do <laughs> your DJ voice. Uh, well, that's as good as I can <laughs> yeah. do. But uh, Written I, by Jackie DeShannon. Is that so is our, builder. So, Yeah, terrific what, American what? songwriter. And we used to speed everything up. Remember somebody saying I sound like Minnie Mouse on Methody? Well, <laughs> you, it, what, watching you, it sound, I mean, you look the same pretty much. No. Well, I, I encourage people to look at it because it looks like, oh, Tracy Ullman playing a young, making fun <laughs> of a young singer. I didn't really have looks to lose. I've, I, my family used to call me a troll in that kind nice. of cruel English way when I was a little girl. And I saw my uncle last year. He went, yeah, you still look like a troll. Well, that's Which because you're six, you're six. Trolls don't age. Exactly. And now trolls are a, a thing again online. Tro- hello. Uh, so living here for 20 years, you've lived here for 30 years, but you mm. became an American citizen after living here for about 20 years. I did. Yes, I um, I got married here in 83 to an English man. Um, he, he never became a citizen. And we've had, I had both my children here and I've had a wonderful career and wonderful life and interesting. Why did you suddenly here. decide? You didn't have I, to. They wouldn't have this is out. honestly the truth. I met Barack Obama at a small fundraiser. Not even a fundraiser then. He was just like literally meeting like people. Like someone's Yeah. And... Uh, I talked to him that night and just, I thought he was wonderful. And um, somebody had meant, said something to me glibly at a party a couple of weeks ago, like, yeah, but you don't get it because you're British. And I thought, going, hang on, I've been here for 30 years. And I thought, no, I really, I want to become an American now. And I became an American and I did indeed vote for Barack Obama yeah. twice. Tom Hanks enabled this as well somehow as part of the Yeah, he was the, the one legend. that said, you don't know you're British. Somebody said it in his nice Tom Hanks way. Uh, it was Tom Hanks. I remember going, Tom, I know a lot about this place. I went, oh, you do, do you? <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's, yeah, so it's your fault, Tom. Yeah. So you, your two children grew up here. They did. And they're, so they're Americans. Well, they have both had, Mabel always likes living in England, and Johnny has a totally British accent. Really? And works for James Corden. How did you manage and, that? Uh, I don't know. It's me and my husband were so English, and he huh. hung out with us a lot. And you're okay having uh, a kid in show business? Show business, as Mel Brooks <laughs> said on my, uh, show business. Oh, he's, but the kid's so talented. I got to tell you, he's fantastic. He's amazing. Yeah, I know. No, he's, he's, he'll be okay. My daughter was like, never wanted to be in show business. When, when she was three, someone said to her, do you want to be an actress like your mommy? And she said, no, I want to be something useful like a nurse. <laughs> and that's Mabel. And she she's is like, something useful, right? She's like a... She, she, well, she, she's she, like a, she has a fantastic job. Yeah, she works for the Power of Nutrition. It's an NGO. And she was at the UN a few She ran for ago. parliament? She, yeah, she's, tra- she's uh, come very close to being an MP a couple of times and that's her passion actually politics and one day she will be an MP I think my daughter and you also I, I, she's certainly the total ruler of our house is that right she's supreme leader in our house <laughs> yes dear leader yes yeah. <laughs> um, and, a character you've done more than once uh, an American character is uh, a makeup artist named Ruby Romaine yeah yeah this is this is she shopping at a grocery store <laughs> You know, this is a lousy country. As Bette Davis told me once, getting old ain't for sissies, and now I know what she meant. It's tough, you know. People don't want to hire you. Money becomes a problem, you know. There you go. I'm sorry you can't pay for liquor and cigarettes with food stamps. Like I said, it's a lousy country. What is it, anti-senior week this week or something, dear? So where did that come from, that character? Is that yours? Is that a writer's idea? Um... Just saw those old ladies in Hollywood. It's based on an old union hairdresser. And you see them still, you know, with the cotton candy hair. And, you know, they work where they are flying. Oh, big when stars were stars, you know, he was hot in pictures. And um, this is a beautiful place, turn on the boom shack like a town. You know, those kind of alcoholic bigots. And they have their Christmas trees up all year because uh-huh. this company. 
And I just saw, I just love them. You still see them in the, you yeah. know, the polyester pants with the little white mules and they drive their big cars. So American. Right. They're a little drunk. They go, that's a hot day. I had a couple of beers. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to be Ruby again. I used to love being Ruby. Everyone loved me being Ruby because I could say anything I wanted. Yeah. Well, one would like to talk to Ruby about, say, President Trump. Oh, says he's great. He's doing a great job. You crazy kooks here at this liberal radio station. You drive a Volvo. <laughs> uh, but your your ability to do these gobsmackingly convincing American accents, was that a thing you could always do as a kid? Yeah, yeah, but you have to really work at it, and you have to realize that um, accents change, and a lot of actors, especially English actors, would get stuck in that dirty, dirty, dirty kind of old movie stuff. And you don't nobody talk like that anymore. Hey, look at you, you know, you're in pictures. And people don't realize that you have to listen to that. Everything's changed now from 30 years ago, especially in London, too. Don't just listen to newsreaders or trained people, you know. And I used to call people in Brooklyn. I'd call people like at libraries and car dealerships. Just to talk, just to hear a real voice, you know. And um, because now I have YouTube, I can look up anybody. But I think I've gotten better at it as I've gotten really? older. Sometimes I wasn't so great at it. But uh, it's a real fascination Is for it me. a thing, though? I mean, now, as I say, that there like, are a dozen British actors on American shows playing Americans. They're great now. Everyone's and, and, a lot better at it now. But, but it's not so much vice versa. I mean, you rarely hear or see a, a, an American actor doing a perfect British accent. Why is that? Well, we had Kevin Costner and Prince of Thieves. That's really a... <laughs> Careful, Nottingham. <laughs> no, that's not fair to keep Meryl using Strape it. Was, it and if we all talk about Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins well, one more the, time, it's just not fair. That's not it fair. was really a long time that's ago on that fair. soundstage yes. in Burbank. Oh, look, a curry, curry fair. <laughs> Poor Dick, give him a break. Yeah. Um, to do real characters, to do regional people, that's harder. Yes, rather and, than just And that standard. stems from when I first did my show at Fox. Yeah. I would never just let them make me promote in L.A. and New York. I said, there's a whole country out there, and I want to go and see it. I used to travel around a lot and go to really small stations, and I, I loved it. And I would talk to people and take photographs, and it was a really interesting time. Yeah. Um, in addition to creating these these specific fictional characters, which you do so beautifully, you've been doing a, a, a lot of a lot of real people. This is you as Dame Judi Dench. Oi! I saw that. Do you want me to call the police? I don't know what you mean. Oh, well, it's you, isn't it? If you mean, is it Dame Judi Dench, then yes, it is. How very nice to meet you. Sorry about that. There must be something wrong with the security camera. Yes, well, they can be temperamental. I loved you and James Bond. Oh, we just try to tell a good story. And thank you. What was I thinking? Then Judy Dench wouldn't shoplift. You're a national treasure. Exactly. I, I could watch th- that all day long. She, in other appearances, she knocks over Judy Dench, yeah. cans and she scratches cars. Dog poop and, in the trees. Yeah. We have her in there. <laughs> um, uh, and she's been terribly wonderful about me being her. Has she? Yes, yes. She's congratulated me, and I've sent her presents and things. And she's she got up on an award show about a year ago and said, hello, I'm Tracy Holden. <laughs> uh, she's wonderful. When you're trying to figure out how to do somebody, what is that process? Does it usually begin with, oh, a writer says, I'd like you to do Angela Merkel, or, or you say, hey, I can do a kind of a good Angela Merkel. How does that work? Well, I'm the head writer on the show, so uh-huh. I, I, I write and I come up with, I think I come up with most of the who I think I can be. Uh-huh. Um, I wanted to be Angela Merkel. I admired her a lot and I loved I'd always remember that moment when George W. Bush came and it hugged her from behind and she went you know and so I thought she's the most important woman in world politics and in certainly in Europe in the the last couple of years so 
then you've got to get a bit of a hook because if you're just going to do a straight impersonation, then it has to be something else. I have to sort of interpret them or find a hook. So I thought, imagine if she thinks that she's very sexy and that all the men are just trying to, you know, come around her and find her terribly attractive. So I decided to give that hook for her, which seemed to work. I have to play them very, very real. I have to look exactly like her. But it's the inner emotional life I try to find, you know, a different thing for. There are various kinds of comic impersonations. You seem to be at the, at the I want to do this uncannily accurately end of the spectrum. I mean, I have this brilliant makeup artist, Flora Schuler, uh, at the moment, who is a, a, a sculptor and he does art stuff and he's doing my makeups and he does make me look like, he gives me their soul with these makeups. I used to do makeups a lot of years ago, but they were latex then and they were thicker and they weren't as real. Huh. And now you can do extraordinary things. But uh, yeah, I do. I do look incredibly like them. I don't ever do it in a sort of wacky, yes. surreal way. Cartoon way. No. And and so when you're in the makeup chair to become Judy Dancher, Angela Merkel, is that an hour longer? How, how does that? How long is that? I take? can't. My rule is I can't have anything that just takes longer than two hours to put on because you'd never make your television That's a long schedule. Time. It's a long time, but you know, like you know, people think prosthetic makeup. So you think Jim Carrey for the Grinch. I think he was just twenty three hours a day in the makeup chair, or John Hurt in Elephant Man. Years. People have these visions of prosthetic makeups taking a hell of a long time. Yeah. They're pre-painted. You put them on. They have to just take two hours, and then I get on with it and I do it. And you know, uh, otherwise it would just take us all day. And as you're as you're practicing, okay, I'm going to do Angela Merkel. Do you, do you just sort of go about the day saying normal things? Oh, look, there's the television. There's a the piano in her voice, or do you need? Yes, I like lines? to stay in character, and um, I like to talk to my director Dominic Brickstock um, in character. Um, the crew treat me. I mean, it's not in a sort of pretentious actory way. Right, 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 right. Sometimes I break out of yeah, it, yeah, but yeah. Uh, it does help. And I get great, I have great fun being in character with, you know, and it's amazing who will improvise really well with you. I bet. Yeah, someone's the guy that Just regular likes. people? Yeah, they're really good. You know, and if I'm uh, Theresa May, hello, hello, anybody vote Conservative here? <laughs> you know, and they're all, no, I bloody didn't. <laughs> yeah. I guess you're lucky having a female prime minister right now. Yeah, for how long, we don't know. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, but right now we do. Yeah. We'll see where all this goes. But this is why I have to do a show that we tape 48 hours before it goes out Oh, right is it now. that close to? Yeah, we're doing, we're setting up some stuff and then we, we're going in... 48 hours before the show goes out and putting in 10 minutes of topical material every week because that's what everyone is enjoying right, right. now and what we have to do because I can't do a piece about Theresa May today right. for three weeks' time. It probably wouldn't work. Well, that's interesting. So it's all done in advance, of We're course, doing it, except yeah, for a bit. It's Saturday night live-ish as we can get. Uh, shouldn't they be making you, uh, 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 knighting you or something soon? I'm not a royalist. No. Dame Tracy Ullman isn't in the cards? It's, no, it's not my thing. You know, if you want to, that's your thing, fine. It's never has been with me. Yeah. All the men. Well, I like impersonating Camilla Parker Bowles. You do her well. <laughs> well, I just thought, I think I sound like Prince Charles within her body or something. No. It's just a, you don't look it's like, a, No, it's nothing like everybody, but I, I do. I, I don't ha, know. I've had fun doing that. But to me, I've actually never heard her speak. I just take your version of her well, as what like, she is. Well, they, they do. They speak terribly like this, and they are terribly, you know, they talk about horses and charities and things, and it's that, that English thing where you don't move your mouth when you talk. Yes. You rarely hear them talk, and they talk like that. I like recently that Kate Middleton who's sort of having to become posh because she wasn't originally. I like that she has this morning sickness. And they um, they, they talk about it. They say, um, uh, Kate Middleton will um, not be doing her regular duties. She's suffering from hyperemesis gravidarum. 
It's like she's throwing up. That's funny. You know, it's so royal. It's, it's, it's royal vomiting. gravidorum. As if all the subjects will know. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's Latin for morning sickness, that is. Yeah. Yeah, she's got a bun in the oven. Um, <laughs> what a pleasure it is talking to you. And what a, oh, what, what, I'm what, having what, a nice time talking to you. Even though you're a communist, uh, left-wing, you know, NPR revolutionaries. <laughs> I like it here. Good. Have we got a cocktail? You got some alcoholic here? We got some G&Ts Yeah, those yeah. turmeric tea you're serving, uh, all this herby stuff, you know. A little alcohol wouldn't go amiss here. You can come back anytime you want. I like. would love to. Uh, what a pleasure. Um, thanks for coming in. Oh, thank you so much. Tracy Ullman's newest show, Tracy Ullman's show, uh, is on HBO. Its second season has just begun. Coming up. Dear Bunny Burson, this letter is to confirm you have received the actual confetti that was loaded and ready to drop from the ceiling at the Javits Center on election night. An artist's quest to take the detritus of an unhappy election result and transmute it into something positive. That's next in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. I am a big fan of counterfactual fiction, those what-if alternate history stories like Philip K. Dick's Man in the High Castle, the novel that has now been turned into a series on Amazon imagining what America would be like if we'd lost World War II. Bunny Burson is an artist from Missouri, and she has taken a more optimistic approach to the counterfactual. She took an event that she found very unfortunate, and tried to reimagine it turning out better. Specifically, she conjures what it might have been like on election night a year ago if things had turned out the way she and everybody else figured they would. Studio 360's Skylar Swenson got the story from Burson. Going to the Javits Center on election night, people were walking there excited. The buildings were lit red, white, and blue. Everybody was in a fantastic mood. It was a beautiful night. And here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Decision Night in America. Voters head to the polls to choose between the first woman president and a businessman running for his first elected office. Clinton headquarters is the Jacob Javits Convention Center in New York City with its symbolic glass ceiling. And we get there and see people we know and the whole place was festooned with flags and banners, and I've never seen so many smiles. For artist Bunny Burson, walking into the Javits Center on election night felt like approaching the finish line, victoriously. She and her husband worked on the Clinton campaign for months, making phone calls going state to state, door to door. They both had roles in Bill Clinton's administration, and now here they were for Hillary looking forward, and up. When you looked up at the Javits Center ceiling, the way it was lit, that blue, that royal blue, was so intense, and the lighting was so perfect. The ceiling is, you know, a broad piece of glass. There are all these little pieces of glass that make up the whole ceiling. I kept looking up, thinking that this was going to be something incredible, and it was going to be quite something when Hillary was elected president. 
But the evening, of course, didn't go exactly as planned. Borderline panic in Democrat he world. Still has that significant lead, well over 100,000 votes. There's just not enough votes out there, I believe, for Hillary Clinton to, to, to recapture the lead. All of a sudden, the announcers were saying Hillary's only path to the presidency is these states. And that was a, a shock because we certainly never expected it even to be close. CNN now projects that Donald Trump will carry the state of Wisconsin. He's cracked the so-called blue wall that Hillary Clinton... I think made. there's some real jitter setting in in Clinton headquarters right now. We looked around and there were so many faces that looked distressed, including our own. Hillary never appeared that night. Yet another disappointment. Everybody was sent home at 2 in the morning. So everybody left. It was like a funeral dirge. And um, we left, and by the time we got to our hotel and turned on the television. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. So it was a sad, devastating, unbelievable rest of the night until the next day. I know, I know we have still not shattered that highest and hardest glass ceiling, but someday someone will, and hopefully sooner than we might think right now. On the way home to St. Louis, Bunny got a call from her daughter, who has a friend who's a journalist, and he knew of my prior work. And um, he said, you ought to tell your mom that they're packing up, unloading the air cannons and packing up the confetti. And I thought, I have no idea where they're taking it. I'd have no idea what I'm going to do with it, but I want it. Bunny spent two weeks trying to track down the confetti. She called dozens of people who had worked on the campaign. Nobody seemed to know where it ended up. Some people said it's been destroyed. Others said, I think it went to Connecticut, or I think it went to Washington. And then finally, a fellow artist connected her to the Clinton campaign's director of production, who helped her find the company who made the confetti. Bunny contacted a few people there And when she finally found the right guy, he said, yes, I've got it. And I said, the actual confetti that had been loaded into the air cannons, I don't want any other confetti. He said, no, I've got that confetti. And I said, how much do you have? And he said, 200 pounds. And I said, I'd like to have it. And could he send it to me? And um, he said, sure. Boxes and boxes of bags filled with confetti arrived at Bunny's doorstep. You know, I could tell that it was was the actual confetti because it wasn't pristine. You know, some of it was bent. The bags had masking tape on them. It came with a letter verifying its authenticity. Dear Bunny Burson, this letter is to confirm you have received the actual confetti that was loaded and ready to drop from the ceiling at the Javits Center on election night. When Bunny opened the first box, she could tell this wasn't just any confetti. It's plastic, it's not paper, and it's luminescent, it's pearlized, and it's much bigger than what I thought it would be. In other words, it looked like glass. And Bunny suddenly understood two things. First, the way the confetti would have likely been used on election night. 
Clinton would have had some line in her victory speech about the glass ceiling being broken, and the confetti would have symbolized the shattering of the glass ceiling. And the second thing that came to Bunny was an inkling of how she would turn her disappointment into art. When I saw what the confetti looked like, I had an idea of what I wanted to do. I wanted to feel, and I wanted the viewer to feel, what it would have been like to have been in the midst of all this confetti. And I thought about a giant snow globe and which I would be in the middle. The Bruno David Gallery in St. Louis gave Bunny their front window where she could construct this giant snow globe. It was five feet tall by five feet wide and three feet deep. Generators and a fan blow the confetti around the space continuously. And lighting and a mirror were installed in the back so that when people walk up to the window, they'd see the reflection contained in the globe. And in the mirror, when you see yourself being showered by a glass ceiling that has just been broken, you can read the words of poet Maya Angelou. And still I rise. Confetti usually is a medium we associate with happy times and celebrations. And I'll be honest, a lot of people who came to see this installation, who are definitely on the same page I'm on, they said, oh, this is so sad. But for me, using it in the way that I'm using it, I feel like it still has that same resonance, that it's about the future and that we all need to be hopeful about the future and doing our part for the future. Bunny's heard from people all over the country who have seen pictures of the installation but wish they could see it in person. So she decided to create a thousand smaller snow globes using the same confetti and plans to send them to people. And it turns out that the person who wanted more than anyone to be showered by that confetti will soon be getting some. We happened to see President Clinton at an event, and my husband showed him an image of the, of the piece. And he said, has Hillary seen this? We didn't know whether she had or not, but he took a photograph home with him. And within the week, I got a letter from Hillary, and it was beautiful, thoughtful, and she felt that this was a wonderful way to use the unused confetti and that she was glad that I had kept the flame alive. I'm sending her a snow globe. That story was produced by Studio 360's Skylar Swenson. You can find out more about Bunny Burson's art and snow globe project on her website, bunnyburson.com. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust, I'll rise. Before we move on with our show, I want to recommend something else for you to check out. I have this, this theory that you start at the stupid end of the book, <laughs> and then you bash your head's brains out for years, and you, if you're lucky, you end up at the smart end of the book. That is Salman Rushdie, and he's talking to Luke Burbank, who hosts the terrific podcast and show Live Wire Radio, which they record in front of a live audience, usually in Portland, Oregon. So that's what it feels like. It feels like trying to get past your own stupidity to find the book. 
And you say stupidity because you'll go back and you'll reread because the pages. You yeah, you don't like it, and it's not it's not doing what you want it to do, and it doesn't feel the way you know it's it's wrong until it's right, and so it's wrong most of the time. You've described every moment I'm hosting this show. <laughs> <laughs> On that recent episode of LiveWire, you can also hear Rushdie talk about his new novel, The Golden House, and his relationship to emojis, to movies, Kim Kardashian, and President Trump. You can find LiveWire Radio on any podcast purveyor. Studio 360. John Green has the singular distinction of being a YouTube superstar as well as a bona fide literary superstar. On YouTube, with his little brother Hank, he creates and hosts a whole bunch of educational shows for young people. Their YouTube channel has got more than 20 million subscribers. Good morning, Hank. It's Tuesday. It's Question Tuesday, the day that I answer real questions from real nerd fighters. Let's get right to it. And John Green is also one of the big-time YA novelists. His novels are written for teenagers, but they're nuanced and complicated and sometimes unsettling in great ways. And they have sold in the tens of millions of copies. Some of them have been adapted into movies, most famously, The Fault in Our Stars. All right. What's your story? I already told you. I um, was diagnosed when I was 13. No, 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 not your cancer story, your real story. Your interests, your hobbies, your passions, your weird fetishes. Weird fetishes? Come on, just think of something. The first thing that pops in your head, something you love. He's got a new novel called Turtles All the Way Down. It is a story told by a teenage girl named Aza, who's got both a great and vivid imagination and extreme anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder. John Green's here to talk about the new book, his online celebrityhood, and some of the cultural works that shaped him. John, welcome to Studio 360. Oh, it's great to be here. You started writing uh, mainly about teenagers in your fiction, and you still do. No doubt you've explained a thousand gazillion times why that's true, but why, why did you and why do you? I like writing about teenagers because they're doing so many things for the first time. And there's something intense about that. Uh, and there's also something that lacks any kind of irony about that. I, and I find it really, really appealing. Like they're falling in love for the first time. A lot of times they're grappling with grief for the first time. But they're also asking like those big questions of being a person for the first time about meaning and suffering and whether meaning is inherent to human life or something that we have to construct together. And I... I love those questions, and I love the way that teenagers look at them, and I think that's really the attraction uh, for me about teen characters. Does it ever worry you that as you now are 40 and someday will be 50 and beyond, uh, that like Hopefully. It, 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 that it like holds you back? I, I do worry that, you know, as I get older, I, I become someone who knows less and less about teen culture. But then when I, when I was a teenager, I knew almost nothing about teen culture. Yeah. So I don't know how much of a concern that is. I think a lot of the emotional experiences are, are universal. Right. The Fault in Our Stars was narrated by a girl. Uh, this new one, Turtles All the Way Down, narrated by a girl. Uh, ha having written a novel in the voice of a woman, I, I know that that's a daunting thing. Why, why do you keep doing that? 
Well, I definitely felt a responsibility to, um, you know, to try to get it right. Aza and I are different in a lot of ways. Uh, that's one of the really important ways, but there are other really important ways that we're different. And I think writing is always an act of empathy. It's always an attempt to get outside of oneself. That's one of the things I like about it. it. Myself can feel like a dangerous and scary place to be stuck inside of. And I think one of the things that I've liked about writing since I was a kid is is the feeling that I can almost be magically transported out of my consciousness and, and into someone else's when it's working. I'd been working on a different novel for almost a year, and I, I was 40,000 words into it, and it was frustrating, and it wasn't working. And then uh, one afternoon, I opened up a Gmail uh, window to start sending an email. And instead of sending that email, I started to write um, about these two kids, Aza and Daisy. And that's just how they showed up. And this book for teenagers gets metafictional. Whoa, it's a girl who thinks she's a fictional character who who understands other human beings in this book as fictional characters, but they're real, but they're fic you know. But in this case, I mean, it isn't ultimately this metafictional conceit because it is a symptom of her mental disorder, right? Right. I mean, she is worried that she's not really real, not because she's worried that she might be a character in a novel written by <laughs> yes. me, but because she's worried that essentially her fate is being written by the microbes that colonize her gut and then secondarily by the fear that those microbes cause her. Right. I mean, it's arguable, and I believe true, that who we are is the result of bits of matter in our brains doing what they're doing as opposed to bits of matter in our gut. So she's nutty, but it's half true. Well, I think a lot of people who struggle with, or at least I, can, I guess I can only speak to my own experience, in my experience with obsessiveness is that it begins in a place that reason can't effectively touch. It has to be true enough that I can't close the loop through logic. And that's part of what I find difficult about my obsessive thought spirals is that I can't get out of them via more thinking. Right. I was impressed by the passages where you are depicting this mental state. That must have been a kind of literary technical challenge to figure out how far to go and how confused and disorganized to make that prose. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the great challenges of writing about pain, I think especially physical pain, but also psychic pain, is that it doesn't lend itself well to language. It resists direct description, right? You can't talk about abstract feelings of psychic pain the way you can talk about a, a table or chairs. And so you have to try to find language for it. You have to try to find some kind of form or expression for it. But in that process, a lot of times you end up with these metaphors. And metaphors can feel exaggerated and they can feel distancing. And one of the great frustrations that I've found is that I find this pain extremely isolating at times because I can't share it and because it's so hard to find language for it. And so that was... I guess, really the central problem I wanted to to look at in the book. You know, it, was there a way that I could give some kind of expression to this experience in a way that would make other people uh, be able to glimpse it? No, and you've done that. It, does, does it feel cathartic in that sense? Um, it doesn't feel cathartic. I, I would have liked that narrative. I would have liked to be able to tell you <laughs> yeah. that I thought it, it, yeah. it made me better, that like yeah. writing the story was was deeply healing. But I emerged from it with the same problem that I 
had when I started it. It wasn't a cure or anything. Because I was writing about someone who wasn't me, I was able to feel a lot of sympathy toward Aza and a lot of compassion toward her um, that, frankly, at times I've struggled to feel toward myself. And there was definitely a lesson in that for me. So when you were writing Turtles All the Way Down, or deciding to write it, you were, as I've read, coming off a horrible kind of, is it fair to call it a relapse of your lifelong OCD experiences? Yeah. I had a really bad period of mental health in uh, the fall of 2015, during which, for months, I, I wasn't able to choose any of my thoughts, which was tremendously destabilizing for my sense of self, because, you know, if if you can't choose what you're thinking about, then A, you know, who exactly is running the ship, and B, whose thoughts are these? Yes, yes. Unfortunately, I think in my case, it was a pretty clear cause, which is that I bought into this extremely dangerous but pervasive romantic lie that going off my medication would somehow make me more creative and Uh would end the period of writer's block that I'd had, and that the consequences of that were, as they often are for people, catastrophic. So I think it was very clearly caused by that. Uh-huh. And and then it was just extremely difficult to get back to a place where my health problem was able to be treated somewhat effectively. Uh, and that, that did finally happen uh, after, after several months. But, you know, f- from inside of those months, they felt like they were going to last forever. And you came out of it and felt in balance again. And then you said, well, I I actually have to go there in my fiction now and create a character who has this problem. I think it was really difficult for me to write about anything else. I tried to go back to the story that I had been writing, but it it was the thing that I, I needed to write about. You know, you remember how scary that was and how, uh, painful it was. And, you know, you're scared that it could come back at at any time. And so I, I think, it was hard for me to even imagine writing about a kid um, who had anything other than than this thing, you right. know, that I'd had in high school and that right. I remembered having in high school, and and that I'd also just come out of this really uh, really difficult experience with. Yeah, given that most of your readers are adolescents, does that change the nature of what you feel your responsibility is beyond creating a great story and great characters? I do feel a responsibility to try to tell the truth. And I believe that, for lack of a better way of saying this, that the truth is hopeful. I believe that hope is the correct response to the world. Uh Um, And so I do feel a responsibility to be hopeful, but only in the sense that I feel a responsibility to be honest. But... If you were writing books for adults, would you feel the same responsibility to be hopeful because that's your take on how we should be human? I would, yeah. I would feel the same way. I I would feel the same set of responsibilities, I think. It's hard to know for sure, but I think I would. I mean, in general, I think that teenagers are tremendously intelligent and thoughtful readers. And one of the cool things about having teenagers read your books is that, you know, in any given year, most of the people reading Hamlet in America are teenagers, you know? <laughs> That's I mean, yes, yes. Well, and now that you're being assigned in high school curricula, does that change the nature of how you feel about the audience you're writing for? It is very weird to me that that has happened. Um, for the record, I 
think high school kids should read Toni Morrison. <laughs> um, but uh, I guess my, my response to it is that inevitably when you read a book in a high school English class, you read it differently, right? Like I remember reading The Great Gatsby in my high school English class and announcing that it was a terrible novel, <laughs> a complete failure in every possible way. <laughs> And, uh, you know, that, of course, was not the fault of The Great Gatsby. You were wrong, John, by the way. Yeah, I know. Right. That was that was the fault of me as a reader. Um, and there is there is so like I think the way we approach stuff that we read in English classes, or at least the way I did in high school, is vastly different from the way we approach yes, pleasure reading. Exactly. But I, I, I don't I don't think differently about the writing process. Right. Um, right. Yes. Your your first novel uh, a dozen years ago, Looking for Alaska, uh, has been banned by some uh, because of mm-hmm. I, m- most spectacularly, I guess, because of this uh, scene involving oral sex between uh, a couple of teenagers in that book. Um, None of your books are G-rated particularly, but why do you think that particular scene in that particular novel causes so much discomfort among grown-ups? I think because we are a lot more obsessed over sex than we are about violence or drug use or profanity or whatever else people might use as a reason to ban a book from a high school classroom. Um, But that scene is very graphic, intentionally very graphic. In context, I think it reads very differently Mm -hmm. than, you know, a lot of times when this stuff happens, people photocopy two pages from a (laughs) book, they send it to the principal and they say, as you can see, these two pages are filthy. But then if you read the scene in context, the meaning of it completely changes. And that's why, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't pick which books to share in schools or which books not to based on, you know, two decontextualized right. pages. Right. So you have these little kids. In five or ten years, they're going to be teenagers. At what point do they get to read uh, Dad's uh, novels? <laughs> I'm hoping that my children will be as uninterested in my work as I was <laughs> in my parents' work. I think you can bet on that. <laughs> So we have talked a lot about uh, this new book. Could you read a bit from it? Maybe, maybe the very beginning? Sure. Great. At the time I first realized I might be fictional, my weekdays were spent at a publicly funded institution on the north side of Indianapolis called White River High School, where I was required to eat lunch at a particular time between 12.37 and 1.14 p.m. by forces so much larger than myself that I couldn't even begin to identify them. If those forces had given me a different lunch period, or if the table mates who helped author my fate had chosen a different topic of conversation that September day, I would have met a different end, or at least a different middle. But I was beginning to learn that your life is a story told about you, not one that you tell. Of course, you pretend to be the author. You have to. You think, I now choose to go to lunch when that monotone beep rings from on high at 1237, but really... The bell decides. You think you're the painter, but you're the canvas. I I love that line, you think you're the painter, but you're the canvas, even though I think one is actually both uh, painter and canvas. So we asked you for some of the things that have been big influences on you, and one of them uh, you told us about is Harvey, the play and the great Jimmy Stewart movie where he's got this giant rabbit as his imaginary friend. Here's a clip from the film. Oh, doctor, I... I you, you know, years ago, my mother used to say to me, she'd say, in this world, Elwood, 
you must be, she always called me Elwood. In this world, Elwood, you must be oh so smart or oh so pleasant. Well, for years I was smart. I recommend pleasant. And you may quote me. Now, uh, of course, uh, he in that movie, I guess you could say, has a mental illness because he believes he's uh, talking to this giant rabbit. What did you love about that movie? How was it helpful to you? Uh, It was normalizing. I think that was one of the reasons it was helpful to me. It also just came to me in the the right moment at at a moment when I desperately needed somebody to normalize behavior that the world felt was uh, weird, was so weird that it couldn't talk about or it was so shameful that it, it shouldn't be the subject of, of movies. Um, when was that moment? Oh, I was really sick. That was one of the sickest periods of my life. I'd actually just left my job. I took a leave of absence from my job working at Bookless Magazine. And on my way out the door, my boss said, now more than ever, watch Harvey. Huh. Um, huh. And I don't believe in, in epiphanies or anything like that, but I, I do know that uh, I have never felt as bad since I watched Harvey as I felt before I watched Harvey. Huh. There are a lot of reasons for that, but that movie, it's so big-hearted, and it welcomes, uh, in the end, this guy, Elwood, into the pantheon of American movie heroes and that felt so great. So there's that, and then there's also just that it is a very funny, very mm. wise movie. I mean, that line is one of the great lines in American movies. Like, <laughs> how deeply true is that? Like, you can be oh so smart or oh so pleasant. And uh, I, I share Elwood's belief that pleasant is, is the better path in the end. I was watching videos uh, of you and your brother and you both have a kind of uh, Jimmy Stewart affect. Well, that's kind of you to say. Um, it's been this amazing project for the last 11 years of going from not being particularly close to my brother to having him be my closest collaborator and somebody I, I turn to literally every day to talk about the stuff that matters to us. And it's, yeah, it's wonderful. Another one of your influences, I guess. The Mountain Goats, the the excellent John Darnielle's band. I want to play one of your favorite Mountain Goat songs and one I like as well. The best ever death metal band out of Denton Never settled on a name But the top three contenders after weeks of debate were Satan's Fingers and the Killers and the Hospital Bombers. That's Best Ever Death Metal Band out of Denton from 2002 by the Mountain Goats. What did you fall in love with there? I mean, with that song in particular, it's just a, it's a hymn. Um, It's a hymn to every kid who feels like an outcast and uh, the way the social order can make that so much worse. Mm -hmm. I I love the Mountain Goats because they make songs that feel like they're for me. And and there's also... um, something that harkens back to childhood experience and sort of by acknowledging it somehow helps heal it. And that's one of the things I've always loved about that song. Another uh, favorite thing we share is the movie Rushmore, which was Wes Anderson's breakout movie starring Jason Schwartzman as this nerd delinquent at uh, prep school, Rushmore Academy, and uh, Bill Murray as his unlikely pal. And here's a clip from that film. What's the secret, Max? 
the secret? Yeah, well, you seem to have it pretty figured out. Secret, I don't know. I, I think you just gotta find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. For me, it's going to Rushmore. <laughs> That's such a great line. <laughs> yes. That is Jason Schwartzman and Bill Murray in Wes Anderson's Rushmore, 1998. What, what, what did you love about that movie? Well, I mean, I went to a boarding school. I was a terrible student at that boarding school. I, I, I have a lot in common with a lot of characters in that movie, uh, but especially Max. And I love that movie uh, for its lines, for the way it talks about the creative process. And then just its aesthetic is amazing. I mean, just the visual life of that movie is is such a pleasure to spend time with. And is Max's secret? Find what you love and do it for the rest of your life. Is, is, that, <laughs> is that pretty much the John Green secret as well? I mean, I think it's a great life strategy. But I mean, to be honest, if I was going to find what I love and, and do it for the rest of my life, I'd probably uh, spend my days listening to the mountain goats fishing on the White River. So I haven't chosen exactly that path. Right, right. John Green's Turtles All the Way Down is out now and available everywhere. Uh, Thank you, sir. That was great. That was really fun. Thank you. And that is it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is produced by PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. You crazy kooks here at this liberal radio station. You drive a Volvo. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are... Sam Kim. Skylar Swenson. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bizzari. Our production assistant is... Claude Gillette. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks very much for listening. R.I. Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, that time back in 2014, talking to performer Taylor Mack when I had a premonition. I'm going to give you a prediction about yourself. You are, in a very few years, five max, going to be a MacArthur genius. Oh. (laughs) Ta-da. I was right. Taylor Mack and other newly minted MacArthur geniuses next time on Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate.